Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kimanuka. Colin, so you got vaccinated, huh? I did get vaccinated. It took me out for two days. Uh, I mean, it's worth it, obviously, but yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> it's quite a an ordeal for at least at least two days after you're vaccinated. Yeah, it's weird. I it took me out the first few days. I was okay, but uh, a few days later, I was completely out of it. But uh, feel very grateful that uh, we're hopefully one step closer to seeing people in person. Definitely, and hopefully we can uh, do the things we all used to enjoy doing together. But And take for granted, too. <laughs> yeah, I know, seriously. No, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's been a trying time. But anyway, what documentary are we talking about today? Uh, today we're looking at Through the Night, which looks at a 24-hour daycare in New Rochelle, New York. Come on, Mama, time to get up. Come on. Morning, baby. All right. Noah, time to get up. I've been doing this for 22 years. I have all different types of families in my daycare. I have some that comes in at 6 o'clock in the morning that works at 8.30 at night. I have some that comes from 3.30 to 12.30 at night. I have some that comes in overnight. I see a lot of parents come in and break down. They don't want to do this, but they need to work and take care of their family. See you later. All right, baby, have a good day. Be careful. This is the way the world is set up at this point. That voice you heard in the clip is Dolores Hogan, who runs the daycare with her husband, Patrick. The film follows her and some of the families she helps. But what she said at the end there is really the through line of the documentary. The world just isn't set up right now so that parents can spend time with their kids while keeping their heads above the water financially. Colin, I know you don't have kids, but I have kids and working and taking care of kids is, you know, it's it's complicated. Yeah, it's a full-time job and I really got the sense from watching this film, just how difficult, taxing, but also, you know, rewarding it can be, right? Because I feel as though there is a community being built here. There's that saying, it takes a village. I don't think any other film I've seen has uh, really put that uh, message across as much as this film has. Like, it, it really takes a lot of people to raise children and raise them well. And I thought this film did a really good job of showing that. I think you hit the nail on the head. It uh, it does take a village. To learn more about Dee's Tots, Dolores, and Daycares, we spoke with the film's director, Loyla Limbo. So stay with us. Loyla Limbo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to speak to you because I really loved your documentary. Today we're talking about Through the Night, um, and your documentary is about a 24-hour daycare called Dee's Tots. How did you hear about the place? I first learned about Dee's Tots through an article that I read uh, several years ago now. Uh, and the article was sort of looking at the fact that in the United States, uh, increasingly people have to work multiple jobs to make ends meet and that many of those jobs require overnight hours or irregular hours. And it was posing the question of, given that reality, who looks after people's children? 
and then they profiled uh, these tots and a few of the families who rely on them for, for childcare. And so I was reading this article and uh, the, the feeling I had while reading it was like seeing my, my mother's story, um, you know, being depicted. Uh, and as a filmmaker, that just all sort of captivated me from an emotional place and I just thought it would, it would make a really good film. So you mentioned the feeling. Um, can you describe that feeling? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I just, it was, um, it was really powerful because I was reading about people that I didn't know, uh, but then feeling like what the words I was reading were describing so much of what I remember my mother's experience being uh, and to some extent, my own experience, you know, as the child uh, of someone who was working the night shift and working minimum wage jobs and raising, you know, four, four kids in New York City as a single mother. Uh, I'm the oldest of the four, so I was her right hand um, from pretty early on. And so I, I just had, you know, the, the, the article jogged all these memories for me. Uh, and it made me think about how common this experience is uh, in Black and Latinx uh, communities, working class, low income communities, but also how how little we see this reality be portrayed anywhere. Um, you know, that was one part of the feeling. And then the other part was feeling really angry. I remember feeling a lot of anger at the fact that this uh, was still the case, you know, 30-something years later, um, you know, that people are having to kind of make these impossible decisions just, you know, while trying to provide and care for their families um, because of the way that our economy works in the United States. Um, and so those were some of the, the emotions that came up for me um, as I was reading the article. Uh, I want to talk more about the couple that run the daycare but one of the things that Dee says uh, in the documentary speaks to what you were just saying about the anger. Um, she says, you know, this is the way the world is set up. Parents have to go out and pay their bills. But I think, you know, um, beyond what parent, the sacrifices that uh, single mothers in most situations have to make, um, you know, you have to go make money so you can take care of your children, but where do your children go? And I think as a society, we've all become very accustomed to having goods and services, access to hospitals 24 hours a day, but we never think about the people who are working those so-called irregular hours. Um, in part of making this documentary, is this a way to challenge societies, I guess, around the world in how we have these expectations, but we don't really acknowledge that there are people who have to make these really hard and difficult choices to keep our lives running. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I hope that the film does make folks that perhaps have not thought about this before, you know, when they're going into their local supermarket to pick something up at 11 p.m., uh, because they need it, you know, for the next morning and they're interacting with a cashier who might have three kids at home and have never stopped to think about where this person's children might be, you know, at 11 p.m. on a Thursday night. I do hope that the film is a wake up call uh, because, you know, there is a lot of uh, harm and violence that 
in, at least in the United States, it's disproportionately women of color. Um, that women of color and immigrant women have to take on in doing the work that we now call essential, right? Like these are the people that are doing the jobs that really are critical for a society to function. We now know this because of the pandemic, um, but we've kept them invisible and we've treated them as if they're disposable. Uh, and I think part of you know how that status quo retains its um, power is through the invisibility of it all you know so part of making this film was wanting to expose that a bit how is this daycare different from the daycares that work solely during the day uh well it is different um in the sense that it is open 24 hours uh, seven days a week uh and there isn't the downtime, you know, that that a daycare that closes, you know, that's open maybe 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., which for most of the U.S., those are sort of standard daycare hours, uh, daycare center hours. Uh, many of these daycares do function in people's homes. Uh, this is home-based daycare or childcare, rather, um, you know, so there isn't that downtime. It means that people are sort of constantly coming in and out and the level of commitment, responsibility, labor, investment that it requires is is really, you know, on another, it's a, it's a next level of, of all of that. Um, and I also think, you know, for the parents themselves, uh, they are relying on a service that they need uh, but that is also invisible uh, and, and there's a sort of a stigma uh, that exists around the idea of like your child sleeping outside of your home, uh, you know. And so for particularly mothers and single mothers that are in this position, you know, they also have to navigate the criticism and the judgment that their, you know, colleagues might have in their places of work or that other family members might have or neighbors, right? So on top of it being just kind of logistically difficult and challenging, there's also this sort of emotional, right, level of the way that we guilt and shame um, folks that, that need this kind of care because, again, like you said, we have a society that is used to accessing goods and services around the clock, but our conversations around families and parenting and work have not caught up with that, right? So there's like, you know, even, even the word daycare at this point is a misnomer because care is happening at all hours of the day. It's not just daytime, you know, but we're not having that conversation appropriately, you know? And I hope I, I kind of want to flip that, the stigma towards that. Um, the fact that, you know, if we're reluctant as a society to talk about uh, daycare at night, what does that say about us? It kind of acknowledges that this is happening, but this is something that we don't want to talk about because then we might have to be responsible for that. Yeah, and I think it also upends a lot of um, enduring and deep-seated patriarchal norms, right? Um, there is a level of, of this, I think, that 
is really gender-based, you know? Um, there is this kind of assumption that the work of child-rearing and caregiving is meant to be done disproportionately by women. We, we kind of call it women's work, you know? And, and I say that in air quotes because it's obviously problematic. Um, and precisely because it is seen as women's work, it is undervalued, underpaid, and sort of, you know, made to be much smaller than it actually is, you know. Um, Just to go back to the stigma around your kids sleeping out, I have to say that uh, that was one of the most powerful moments for me in the documentary. I have two small kids. They're now eight and ten. And the idea that they would sleep outside of home or for a parent, for a mother to have to leave their children with uh, with somebody else besides them at night. Um, I hope that when people do see that, they, they find empathy and they find uh, understanding because it is, it is something that, you know, I think it, it was one of the, the most powerful moments. And I don't know if that was intentional uh, on your behalf. Well, I, I, you know, everything, I think I, I would say it was intentional. We poured out, we poured over, you know, hours and hours of footage. And there were many themes that we were trying to address, but certainly the theme uh, of the stigma and the judgment that mothers have to, you know, contend with and shoulder, um, it was a huge thing for you know that I wanted to raise because again I remember that being my mother's experience um, and to some degree even though my life circumstances are very different than my mother's um, because I had access to a college education I'm in a different income bracket right I've had different life opportunities I'm also a single working mother and I still have felt the criticism and the judgment you know it's like you're sort of, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. There's there's no way, you know, to get it right. It seems like there's only judgment, but there's very little support, you know, to, to be given out. And it's like, well, that we have to reconcile these things, right? Like, if you want to be able to go to the hospital at 2 a.m., somebody has to work there. And if these people have families, you know, guess what? You know, and, you know, people don't live in extended families uh, like they used to. And the, things have changed. Times have changed. Right. And this means things for all different kinds of people. So we need to be having conversations that are actually grounded in what our reality is today, not holding on to some kind of ideal notion of a nuclear family or an extended family from you know, times where our society was predominantly agricultural, you know, it, it sounds a little bit absurd to say that, but I do feel like in this area of life, we are still contending with mores and norms from these other time periods, right? Or these realities that are just not what we're living in at all. And it makes it really difficult and it harms the people that, you know, are most marginalized in our society. Um, Dee's Tots is run by uh, th this incredible couple, Dolores and Patrick Hogan. How did Dolores and Patrick meet? Uh, so they actually know each other uh, from their childhood. Uh, and apparently uh, Patrick was friends with her brother and was fi fixing her brother's bike one day, which is when she saw him and you know decided she really liked him. And she, shoot, she shoot her shot. 
Yeah, she she shot her shot, and yeah. it, it literally like she. I think she threw something out of a window at him. Yeah, <laughs> and, I love that story. And the rest is history. And she's like, I I'm gonna get I'm gonna marry you one day. Um, and so, we're gonna have kids and and listen. And it happened. Uh, you know. So Nunu is a um, her, the nickname from is what everybody calls uh, Dolores. Um, watching this uh, documentary for me in any way it kind of it, it was a story about the daycare and the community it becomes a hub for the community but it was also um, a love story of Nunu and Patrick right absolutely uh, I, I we we thought about it while we were making it the team as a love story um, there is Nunu and Patrick's love story uh, which we wanted to sort of celebrate because I think that what they've created, you know, they, I think of them as like, they function as a a safety net for an entire community for, you know, over two decades now. Um, That isn't possible without the love, right? That fuels their relationship. And I think that love is what what really facilitates everything around them. Um, And at one point, uh, Patrick, I I think they called him Pop-Pop in the documentary. Yes. Yes. So at one point, I think they have a a celebration for um, a graduation ceremony for the kids. And he says something that really stuck with me. Um, He Mm -hmm. said, everybody watch everybody's child as you watch your own. What did they, what did Nunu and Pop-Pop hope that this documentary would highlight? And why did they agree to it? Yeah, that's a great question Um, and one that I I actually posed to them throughout the process of making the film, just so that I was clear, right, on like everyone involved, what are, you know, everyone has their own motivations or agendas, so to speak, and I wanted to to surface those things in the process. Uh, For Nunu, uh, the the top thing, the top reason uh, that she wanted to make this film was uh, she, in her words, she said she wanted people to understand what her mothers go through. Um, you know, before, and, and you know, she was like, you know, people sit up here and judge them, but they haven't walked a mile in their shoes. They have no idea what my mothers are up against, and I really want the world to see that and the world to know that. Uh, and then I think with Patrick, uh, there was a piece that was very strong of wanting to show um, just kind of the level of expertise that goes into childcare uh, and wanting caregivers in general, but childcare providers specifically to be um, more respected and more valued. You know, he's, his experience has been that people sort of see them as glorified babysitters and don't really understand, right, the level of expertise and skills that, that this job requires. Um, and just, you know, he, his words are like, we're not any more important than anyone else or any other profession, but we are just as important as everyone else and every other profession, and we just want to be treated that way and be respected as such. I would argue they're the most important because they're giving children tasks that children will need for the rest of their lives. Beside them taking care of the community and the children that come to the daycare, they're also parents. And at one point, Nunu uh, admits that her children have had to share her with other children. What was the impact on their children uh, with them running this daycare 24 hours? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think Nunu's reflection um, 
one, I thought it was very, um, you know, brave of her to sort of say that, you know, and be transparent with that because, you know, we're talking about love and care and it's great the children love to be there, but all of this stuff comes with a lot of sacrifices. Um, it precisely because society doesn't value this work. So they are providing this despite society, right? Like they're not getting the, the kind of support that they they need, you know, um, as caregivers uh, in terms of government support and, you know, and other things like that. So when you're in that situation, again, you know, something always uh, has, something falls through the cracks. Like you can't give everything 300% of yourself all, the, all of the time. Uh, so I think there were, you know, many times uh, while their children were growing up that that was a tension, you know, was feeling like they could never really do anything by themselves or as a family really just have like their parents' attentions, attention to themselves because this is their home. The home was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but on the flip side, and Patrick has spoken about this uh he says that, yes, you know, they might have lost some things, but they also gained a lot of things um, because they grew up with this extended community. Uh, and one of their daughters, Kara, uh, works at the daycare. You know, she's an excellent educator. You see her doing math and letters and numbers and things with the children early on in the film. Uh, and, and their other daughter, Jakara, uh, who now has, is a mother herself, her daughter attends the daycare, you know, and so her daughter is growing up with her grandparents and with all of these other children. And so it's not perfect, right? Yet yeah, there's this give and take, but um, there's a lot to be said about what was gained. So the film is about the daycare, but it also um, highlights some of the mothers. And when I was watching, I wrote down some of the things that these moms said, you know, I'm very tired. I'm always working. It's nonstop. Can you tell us about uh, the mothers that you profiled in the documentary? Yeah, so we follow uh, Marisol Valencia, who is a mother of two, uh, who is, when we meet her in the film, she is working three jobs uh, because none of her employers will give her full-time hours uh, and they don't want to do full-time hours because they don't want to pay health benefits. Uh, and so they will keep her, you know, at 26 or 29 hours just below the cap of a full-time job, which for her then means it, it's not enough. So then she has to go out and get another job or another job, uh, which is has her working, you know, a, a really, yeah, nonstop, a grueling schedule, you know, sometimes seven days a week. Um, and we meet her really in the process of, wanting to find one full-time job that could give her like some sense of normalcy to her schedule that would allow her to be more present and around with her children. Uh, so that's, we kind of meet her at that, at that point in her life. Uh, and then uh, the other mother is Shanona Tate, who is a pediatric ER nurse uh, who works the night shift um, and is a mother of two young children uh, and doesn't have any family around. So she realized on the, on the daycare center um, for care for her two children. Um, and it's just, you know, and even in her case, like she's a nurse, it's not a low wage job. This is very much what she likes to do, what she wants to be doing. She's proud of her career. And at the same time, it's just really difficult and she's always tired and, you know, she feels guilty about, even when she is around, 
she's so tired that that she doesn't feel like she's giving you know the best of herself to her children it's hard Uh, Yeah. What support do they get uh, being able to have their children in a place where quality care is provided? Yeah, they they both talk about Marisol and Shanona both say like they literally don't know what they would do without Nunu, Uh, you know, because there is a care and the safety, um, all the nurturing that their children have had now over many years, their children, you know, are. Um, school-age children and Marisol's oldest is 13 um, and they've been in the in the daycare for many years you know they've literally grown up there Um, it's almost like it is it becomes like the extended family that you don't have you know Um, it it does really become that uh, and it is nothing short of essential um, for their well-being and the the well-being of their children um, and also just having for them, having someone in their corner that is like supporting them and that sees what they're doing, that sees the difficulty of the choices that they have to make and is supporting them, not criticizing them. It's helping them figure out, you know, well, you, you have tough choice A and tough choice B. All right, let's let's help you make these tough choices, you know, instead of criticizing you for the tough choices, that the tough options that you have, you know, at your, at your uh, disposal. So, um yeah, it's it's really family, uh, which is one of the things that I I really came away with um, from the film is that there are these other examples of family um, and the ways that working class and, and, and communities of color reimagine and redefine uh, com- uh, family and community that are born out of necessity and sometimes born out of difficulty, but that are also really um, amazing models uh, and things that should be lifted up as such. And in the documentary, uh, Dolores mentions that parents sometimes break down when they're leaving their kids at their day at the daycare. How come? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and she's Nunu says this as well. No one wants to be in this position where in order for you to provide food and shelter for your children, it means barely seeing your children. You know, like that's not what any parent wants, you know, um, but it is really how things are set up uh, because there's so little support um, in terms of care and caregiving for working families. So it is something that just crushes you. At one point in the film, I don't want to give away too much, uh, but Nunu has a health scare. How did that affect her and by extension, the daycare? Yeah, that was, um, I, th- I think for Nunu, um, the primary effect, obviously she, she has physical um, sort of consequences that she's still dealing with uh, you know, to this day in terms of her recovery. Um, and so there's that new relationship with your body and your sense of self and, and you know, all that comes with, with, with a, health, a severe health scare like that, right? Um, I, I, though, kind of from an outsider observing her and seeing um, the process uh, unfold, I think it made her realize that she needs to take care of herself, um, that she can't 
continue um, prioritizing everyone but herself, which is very much how she functioned. You know, she is, um, she's a larger than life person and she's constantly giving and pouring out. And I think that is like what makes her happy, you know, and, and this is just really who she is. But I think this really was a wake up call for her that there needs to be some giving for herself that she does, um, which, you know, it sounds like something there's so much talk about self-care these days that it's like it sounds like an obvious thing but for someone you know like Nunu uh, no one really knows Nunu's real age but you know you just kind of as it should you be know, <laughs> you know as it should be right you could just kind of like guesstimate-ish you know for a you know a black woman of a certain age that is a caregiver that does what she does Forever 45. Forever 45. (laughs) You know, to accept that she has to take care of herself um, is a huge transformation. Well, you know, I'm thinking behind the scenes, you know, when Nunu um, got sick and everything happened, um, how did you react hearing about it? Because I'm I'm guessing your family now, too. They're they're your family as well, Mm -hmm, by extension. mm -hmm. Yes, uh, it was it was really difficult. It was really scary. Um, I was floored. Uh, so the text message that appears in the film um, sharing the news is actually the text message that I received from Patrick along a lot of other families. He, he made one text thread um, and sent this, this text message out. It was um, a weekday. I want to say it was like a Tuesday morning. I was I was getting my kids ready for school and I got this text message and I, it just like stopped me in my tracks. I was, you know, very, very concerned for her, for him. Then thinking about all the families that depend on them for care, you know, not wondering, right, like what would happen um, to the daycare center. Um, it was it was a really difficult moment. Um, you know, luckily uh, there was a, a bit of a happy ending. You know, uh, but um, but it was it was very difficult, and it was difficult to um, also process in terms of the film. You know, and how to how to deal with it um, in the film because I I knew it somehow needed to be part of the story. Um, because in some ways it it encapsulates, you know, exactly like just what's wrong with this whole situation is that it's very precarious, right? Because all these families, all these people are depending on one woman, on one family. Um, and that's too much responsibility for any individual to bear. It's really a social responsibility. Um, and so, you know, it was like, this is really relevant to, to the, the story but at the same time, um, wanting to be very careful um, and respectful of her time and her space to heal and their need for privacy um, and just, you know, dignity, right? And something that is so um, difficult and delicate to, to navigate. And so it was, it was tricky. It was perhaps one of the trickiest moments in the filmmaking process for me. I think you handled it really well. Um, and... I think it's also has to do a lot with identity, right? Because the way that you've seen yourself and how, how others um, see you. And I can imagine that um, against the backdrop 
of the pandemic. I don't know if you can hear in the background. I'm at home and my children, I don't know if they're wrestling, but it feels like the walls are falling apart. I mean, we've all had to do, um, we've all had to do a lot of, we've all had to do a lot of uh, adjustments, right? So, you know, we're recording this um, uh, on the backdrop of COVID-19. How has the pandemic impacted these thoughts? Yes. um, So it, you know, interestingly enough, these Tots is in New Rochelle, New York, which was the actual first place that there was a major outbreak in New York. Um, and so they were like ground zero, uh, you know, in, in many ways. Um, but they never closed their doors. They've been open this entire time, uh, precisely because they are caring for the children of so many essential workers. Uh, Shinona, who we see in the film, is a nurse. She was she worked. She's been working this entire pandemic. Marisol uh, works as a supermarket supplier. She works for a supermarket supply supplier, and so she was she's been out there six seven days a week, making sure that like our shelves are stocked. Um, so she's worked throughout the entire pandemic, uh, and and their children need you know somewhere to be. Schools are closed. And so Nuna and Patrick never closed their doors, uh, but you know, very scared. Nunu, uh, in addition to the the health issues that we see unfold in the film, she's also she also has asthma. So you know, she um, you know is is a really vulnerable person, um, you know, to COVID. So a lot of fear. Um, and also their economic model uh, collapsed because their model, essentially, their financial model was they had a mixed, you know, it was like mixed income families, right? And so you had some families that are able to pay full tuition out of pocket, others that are paying, you know, a, a different amount with subsidies and, you know, different things. And the families that were paying full tuition out of pocket, you know, by and large, were also families that could work from home and keep their kids home, right? Which, as they were told to do, so I'm not, you know, it's not to blame them. Um, that was the, you know, that's what people are being told to do, work from home and keep your kids at home, right? If, if you can, if you're not an essential worker. Um, and so those families withdrew, and so that income also left. Uh, and so they're running a, the similar operation because they're trying to keep all their staff on. They don't want to lay anybody off. Um, but with their income and their revenues being slashed, uh, which has meant dipping into their retirement, um, you know, savings and uh, and then also just being on the front lines of so many families that are facing all of the uncertainty and all of the hardships, right, um, of, of this period. So they have continued being the safety net that they've always been, but under even harsher and, and scarier circumstances. So I would say it's safe to say that they're they're really worn down and exhausted at this point. And if they if and to think, you know, she was talking about uh, one day her and Patrick being able to travel, have a vacation, and now she is more than ever the safety net for those families. And then for all of those people that um, rely on those 
uh, frontline workers that we call essential, but we don't really pay them essential wages. Um, you know, what are you hoping people will take away from the film when they do see it online and eventually in theaters? I hope that people start to look at our society, uh, our economy, and see how violent our system is. In the U.S., we talk about capitalism oftentimes as a as if it's like the only way, if it's the only system, right? Um, and and as if everything here is normal, you know. And it's yeah, sure, it's unfair, it's unjust, but it's the best system, and it's like the only system that could ever work. Uh, and I hope that when people see the film, they they think about that and actually grapple with that a bit, you know that just to think about how perverse it is that we have a society that demands that people work around the clock and that still sometimes they can't make ends meet. Like, why is that normal? Why is that okay? Um, and I think for, um, for women of color that see this film, for single mothers, um, I hope that the film can serve as a bit of a bomb uh, against all the shame and all the guilt and all the fear and all the things that we internalize uh, about everything that we're doing wrong. I hope that seeing a bit of our own stories in the stories of others can um, serve as a bit of a, of a bomb and, and, and some affirmation to help get us through whatever whatever's going to come next because who knows, you know, it's like every day there's another curveball in this never-ending pandemic saga that we're in, you know. And we have to find a way to keep moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Loyla. I, th this has been, it's one of my favorite documentaries that I've ever seen. Um, oh, thank, thank you so you. much for telling it. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's the podcast. Through the Night is playing at Hot Docs and will be streaming online in the future. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Namshine, all one word. And you can follow me at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive director Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screen. <laughs>